Hello and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. Welcome to episode 12, Ghost Ships and Rail Dock Ribs, Legacies of Pollution in the Pacific Northwest. In this episode, we will learn more about how sound travels on water, creosote pilings, and ghost ships. How the Samish Nation uses GIS in its marine debris removal efforts, and how to report creosote pilings or derelict vessels in the Puget Sound. For this episode, we contacted Lelania Amiot, Aquatic Resources Division's Habitat Stewardship Unit Supervisor, and researched other details from the internet. Lots of great links in our show notes if you want to know more. Yeah, boy, it's a boot time to seize the day. <laughs> Jen says no. <laughs> Somebody's got to do the dad jokes around here. Mm-hmm. So my grandma and aunt and my aunt's family typically come out to Washington, Oregon about once a year for a visit to see me and my grandma's oldest sister who lives just outside of Portland. <laughs> a few years ago, they rented a house on Lake Cushman in Washington. Lake Cushman is on the Olympic Peninsula, and the lake itself was formed when uh, the North Fork of the Skokomish River was dammed for hydropower in 1926. The dam provides power to Tacoma, Washington, generating power for about 9,000 homes. That was actually kind of interesting to me. I did not know that. So there are additional homes that get power, but it's from the Kokanee Dam, which is on the next oh, lake dam. Oh, right. So that mm-hmm. one, I... <laughs> Didn't put it down here, but I, that one was more than this. So it is more total than that number. But just like Cushman is about 9,000 homes. Fascinating. The lake is clear, cool, and refreshing, but definitely still swimmable if it's hot out. The weekend that they were here was an August weekend, but the weather was still uncooperative as it sometimes is in Western Washington. Like, for example, somebody, <clears throat> Mark, may have been... <laughs> Um, in his down jacket that weekend. Uh, well, the rest of us were in our swimsuits swimming. Mm-hmm. Sounds um, about right. We were kind of situated in a little armpit um, on a moderately high bank, and the house itself was super cute. It was like a wood cabin with lots of natural light and areas for crafts and games and coloring. Yeah. But then there was the stairs and the dock and the floating dock were all a little on the sketchy side like loose boards weird and large gaps in the spacing on the stairs mm, yeah i may have fallen and rolled down the path a little bit uh, exposed nails and screws in places that you are walking and jumping and playing king of the dock barefoot mm-hmm. but yeah none of that really stopped those of us that are hardcore enough from swimming mm-hmm And as you just heard, Jen, the magical mapper, was also there with us. Yeah. So it was Jen and I, my aunt Sue, my cousin Nora, and maybe another friend or two. We were in our floaties and it was kind of gray out. Oh, there's actually some video of this. Maybe if you're lucky, we'll find some video to put up on the internet. Wait, no. What? No. Yeah. No. (laughs) Jen's mostly excited because I pointed out to her earlier that, of course, If there is video, I would be the one recording, which means I would not be in the video. Yeah, that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) You still could hear my beautiful singing, though. (laughs) That's true. So, yeah, we were swimming pretty far out because that's the way that pro styles swim with floaties. Mm -hmm. And we were singing because we love to sing, but 
it doesn't really seem like many other people enjoy hearing us sing so much. So we thought we were like doing everybody a favor by going out into the lake and singing <laughs> out there. And there was a little sun hole poking through the clouds. So we started singing You Are My Sunshine, which of course made the sun come out more. Fact. That's how we do. That's right. And then we kind of noticed this little boat being launched from a neighbor's house, and they motored over to us and were telling us about a wedding that they were would be hosting at their place kind of prior to realizing that we were just there for the weekend and we didn't care about their parking for the wedding in a couple <laughs> of weeks. Exactly. Um, and one of the guys, I can't remember exactly how it came through, but he said something about our lovely singing voices. Yeah, that's probably not exactly how he described it. Exactly. <laughs> and then we were all like, wait a minute, you could hear us singing? Because, I mean, this house was, a, I mean, several properties away from where we were. It wasn't, you know, we were right out in front of our house, but, like, this was a, a little ways away. Yeah, probably good. Quarter, quarter of a mile, mile yeah. yeah i would say uh and the guy was like yeah we can hear you singing <laughs> don't you know that sound travels on water and we were like oh yeah <laughs> so this became known as the day that we learned that sound travels on water and if you find yourself floating out in the water where you think no one can hear you remember that sound travels on water so as you may no, we're talking about pirate ships and ghost ships. Mm. So speaking of that, what is a derelict vessel? Wow, that is a really awkward tie-in, but I'll <laughs> see what I can do here. So as a boat gets older, like some people that I know, hey, no. <laughs> if they're not properly cared for, they become prone to falling Hey, no. into disrepair and sinking, often through owner neglect or absence. Ew, that does happen. Boats that are deserted or ditched in marinas or waterways are called abandoned or derelict vessels. And in this episode, we're going to talk to, about them as pirate or ghost ships. <laughs> Most people do not consider the ultimate cost of boat disposal when they make their purchase. Typical disposal for a boat that is at its end of life is the landfill, and that can be expensive. Rotten wood is basically worthless. Some boats are sprayed with asbestos covered in lead paint, and because of stringent environmental regulations, there are only a few places throughout the state that will legally dispose of them, and it can cost a lot to properly get rid of them, sometimes more than the boat is worth. Wow. Hey, Jen. What? What do you call a shop that sells aquatic vessels? Uh... Vessel shop? It was really close. <laughs> it's a boutique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. That's like buoy. And, okay. Anyways, uh, <laughs> ghost ships can pollute our waterways. There is oil and other toxic substances stored on board that can leak into the surrounding waterways, impacting both the aquatic and shoreline resources. Vessels that settle to the bottom can cause scouring, crush sensitive habitat, and basically just disrupt the aquatic environment. Hmm. Anti-fouling paints and other toxic coatings can slough off and contaminate the soil and sea life that feeds on them. And a lot of bottom paints are actually toxic to aquatic life because that's kind of the point is they're trying to keep the aquatic life off of the boat. Ooh. Da -da 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 -da. The ghost ships can also present navigational hazards, either with unmarked structures above the water, like a mast, or if a vessel is just below the surface of the water, it could result in serious injury if somebody has a collision with that. I never thought about that. Yeah. That's kind so of scary. As the tide 
gets lower, those vessels can be closer to the surface. Right. And so especially during extremely low tide days, there's times that these submerged vessels might not otherwise impact navigation, but could on those particular days. Right. Weird. Whack fact. Signs that a vessel may be abandoned or derelict include expired registration, listing to one side, lots of algae, moss, grass, or other plantings covering the vessel, frequently running bilge pump expelling water from the hole, Mm. leaking fluids like oil, fuel, or waste, severe deterioration of wood, paint, or other exterior materials, drifting boats, illegally moored boats, which have not been moved in more than 30 days. Hmm. So that's some uh, more concrete ways to tell what a derelict vessel might be. So if you're if you're if you see one out there and you're trying to figure out kind of look at those different signs. Right. So Amy, what are some reasons that a boat may become derelict? Well, they say each vessel has its own pirate or ghost ship story. Ooh. Speaking of which, what do vampires cross the sea in? Uh mm I don't know. Blood vessels. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) But back to why a boat may become derelict. Mm -hmm. The lead pirate may die or may become too old to properly maintain the vessel, which sometimes it results in them being passed on to other pirate, quote unquote, family members who forget, neglect, abandon, or just not that good at pirating. Oh, yeah. Some ghost ships become too much to manage, which results in either giving it away or selling it at an extremely low price. Hmm. These low-priced neglected boats are often cheap, so people buy them and strip them, and then they ditch them, trying to make quick cash. Hmm. Why would we want to remove the boats? Arr, it's the cost-effective, and it provides <laughs> the human and the environmental's protections. <laughs> okay. According to the San Juan County Derelict Vessel Program website, the cost of salvage and demolition far outweigh the cost of preventing a vessel from sinking, polluting, or causing damage in the first place. Really? Yeah. Wow. The removal both protects the environment and removes those physical hazards and barriers from the water. We have a statewide program, which is funded through registration and permit fees, as well as the sale and disposal of derelict vessels. Hmm. Well, are there programs that are available for removal of derelict vessels? Actually, Washington has a pretty cool pirate slash goat ship removal program. Goat ship? Slash ghost ship removal program. And a voluntary Scary Berry Vessel Turned program. Ooh. What's a pirate's favorite element? The element of surprise? Ooh, that was a good call. I guessed argon. Oh. It's gold. Obviously, it's gold. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. Look, I got her to laugh on that one. (laughs) So the Derelict Vessel Program provides for the removal and disposal of abandoned and derelict, a.k.a. pirate or ghost ships, Found on or above public aquatic lands by authorized public entities. So what this means is Hmm. this doesn't apply necessarily just anywhere. A lot of our shorelands are publicly owned, but we do have privately owned ones also. Mm -hmm. So this program does not benefit the privately owned. The voluntary turn-in program is a little bit different. Okay, so when you said that found on or above public aquatic lands by authorized public entities... They don't have to be found by the authorized public entities. The lands have to be owned. To get the funds, it, mm-hmm. an authorized public entity actually does have to apply for it. Gotcha. 
Um, in practice, the funding usually limits the removal of vessels longer than 100 feet. So, 100 feet's pretty big. Yeah, but it, it also depends on current budget cycle and one-time legislative appropriations that sometimes occur for larger vessel removals. In the last biennium, the legislature provided an additional funds to clean up three large Hulk vessels, which cost over $2.6 million to remove. Wow, to remove three vessels. Correct. Wow. Two of those were in the Hybelos. The Hylobos? Uh, The Hylobos waterway, (laughs) I believe, in Tacoma down there, Uh right? Yeah. I saw a picture of at least two of them, and they kind of look like medium-large, not super-large fishing boats, and Hmm. they had just been sitting down there forever kind of thing. Right. The way that this program works is that DNR actually provides that authorized public entity up to 90% of the cost of pirate or ghost ship removal and disposal. The public entity is responsible for the remaining 10%, but that can just come from in-kind services. It doesn't have to actually be money that they're putting down for Hmm. the 10%. It's actually a pretty cool program. And that is, like I was saying, is just funded through the fees actually for the program. So, And then in addition to that, they have the, as I like to call it, Voluntary Scary Mary Vessel Turn-In Program, (laughs) or the Voluntary Vessel Turn-In Program. Mm -hmm. And this allows the state to dismantle and dispose of vessels under 45 feet. If the pirate ship be slipping into a state of disrepair, and they haven't been pirating enough to afford the booty to get it sailing or dispose of it. Gotcha. So typically they have a ranking and prioritization of them, and these would be the ones that have a high risk of impacting human and environmental health, navigation, and safety. Eligible owners including private marinas that have gained legal title to a vessel in an advanced state of disrepair may apply for the removal assistance, accepted vessels are dismantled and disposed of by the state. Hmm. This is a program that has limited finances with not more than 200000 per biennium. But they just started a new round of funding, July of 2019. Mm-hmm. So it's a great time to apply if you think you have a boat that might meet the definitions. Um, we have all the criteria in our show notes. Nice. Um, DNR also has an inventory of pirated and ghost ship slash vessels and criteria to prioritize the vessel removal. And that includes consideration of environmental protection, threats to human health and safety and navigation. The number of derelict vessels the state tracks has been increasing. Oh. When the 2017 to 2019 biennium began, they had around 100 boats on the list. That number has now grown to 154 in April of 2019, despite the fact that the state removed about 100 boats over the last two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And since the program's inception in 2002, more than 800 vessels have been removed from Washington waterways. I mean, when you consider all of the toxins and stuff associated with those boats, that's quite a bit of work. That is quite a bit of work. That's, yeah. I mean, in Washington, per the law, it is illegal to cause or allow a vessel to become derelict or abandoned, and it can result in a fine of up to 1,090 days in the slammer. Ooh like a criminal misdemeanor style. Mm. And that applies to anyone that causes a vessel to sink, break up, or block navigation on aquatic lands. Um, And then in addition to those fines, the owners are still responsible for all cleanup costs. So Washington is really trying to make these other programs available to people so that they can kind of try to do the right thing instead of just leaving them in the water to kind of decompose. Uh So what can you do? Don't lose your ship. (laughs) (laughs) But <laughs> <laughs> if you own a boat and you're in over your head and you meet the inclusion criteria, apply for the vessel turn-in program with DNR. Links in our show notes on how to apply. If you have a derelict vessel, work to properly dispose of it. 
again, links in our show notes to a map of boat disposal sites in Western Washington. It's kind of limited where you can actually dispose of a lot of these boats. So hmm. I did see a lot of comments saying like, don't just bring your boat to those sites, call in advance and set up an appointment because they don't necessarily have normal hours or just will accept your boat. So make sure you make arrangements with them before you just show up at one of these disposal huh. sites with your boat. Interesting. If you see a boat out there that looks like it could be abandoned or a derelict pirate slash ghost ship, then report your sightings to DNR. We have a link to a combined Oregon and Washington reporting form in our show notes, but we're going to talk a little bit more about some other options for reporting in our citizen science section. Neat. Some municipalities have additional programs like Kings, Nahomish, and San Juan counties, for example. See our show notes for more information on how to contact them. It's about time to talk a little about creosote. Are you sure? Yes, please save us. <laughs> so what is creosote and why is it used on pilings and why do we care? Creosote is a wood preservative that for more than a century has been commonly used in marine waters due to its ability to prevent the wood from rotting. Hmm. It's typically composed of coal tar, Ew. which who knows what that means. It can be comprised of more than 300 chemicals. Another reference I saw that was an older document said something like 1,600 chemicals, so I don't really Ooh. know which one of those is more correct. Creosote-treated materials continue to leach hazardous chemicals into the water and sediments, causing toxic conditions for organisms that live around them. The primary chemicals of concern cause harmful health effects, including PAHs, or polyaromatic hydrocarbons, mm. which present the greatest threat. Those chemicals break down slowly in water, and a piling that contains creosote continues leaching those chemicals its entire lifetime. So all those pilings that, you know, there's no longer the dock associated with them. They are, they're like these ghost ribs. Right. And they initially probably had a dock and that's gone, but those pilings are still there leaching out these PAHs into the sediment. Yum. The presence of these unused structures also blocks sediment transport and allows for unwanted shading along critical nearshore, displacing what could be valuable vegetated habitat. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in our next episode. Ooh. So what's Washington doing about creosote pilings? Washington Department of Natural Resources, DNR, has a creosote program that inventories and removes creosote pilings from the marine environment. So kind of like the derelict vessel program, mm -hmm. they partner with local groups and government and private property owners to remove treated wood located on public and private lands throughout Puget Sound. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. According to the Encyclopedia of Puget Sound, creosote removal is not without its own concerns. Projects must adhere to strict protocols to ensure they do not increase contaminant loads. Mm. For example, a project in Quilcene Bay had PAH concentrations during and after the creosote piling removal that were 25 to 85 times higher than the reference embryos that they initially were looking at to say, yes, we should remove these creosote pilings. And wow. then the levels came way up. Ooh. And many of them actually exceeded the health effects thresholds. Other areas like Port Gamble removed the pilings and they also removed a bunch of the sediment. And so they saw decreases there. Mm. Basically, though, the issue is if they're just stirring up the sediment kind of around them. Right. It's not removing that contamination. So they're working to kind of figure out the best way to remove these. And it might be a little bit different depending on the environment. Mm. And then in addition, if you've ever seen a piling anywhere, you know that they're covered in sea life. While some of those can be removed and relocated, like crabs and starfish, sadly, other things like giant barnacles can't be removed without killing them. So there is actually 
a loss of life when these creosote pilings are removed. There was a partnership with a scuba diving group because it was a popular scuba diving site where these creosote pilings were because of the life around there. Right. So it sounded like they were working with DNR to create a new artificial reef area without creosote. Oh, nice. So that the divers could continue experiencing that sea life, but they could also remove the creosote pilings. Right. And then another issue is that... There's places where creosote pilings and just other debris regularly wash up within the Puget Sound and Salish Sea. Mm-hmm. So DNR will come out. They'll prioritize that. They'll come in. They'll clean up the beach. They might have to come out the next year and re-clean it because it might just be a place where the tides and currents are kind of bringing everything. Right. A revolving creosote door of fun. A revolving <laughs> creosote door of fun. Nice. Yes. Oh. Whack fact. According to DNR... Since the program began in 2004, they've removed more than 21,000 tons of piles, or about 14,400 piles, 182,000 square feet of overwater structures, and 6,670 tons of beach debris. Yay! Woohoo! DNR says they remove five tons of creosote from Puget Sound every day. That's a lot. I mean, that's basically nothing. I pump like 20 tons of creosote every day just to keep these guns smoking. What? (laughs) You can't see them. They're smoking. (laughs) I I don't know what just happened there. Probably should be day drinking. (laughs) Just for fun, we asked Lilania if the shorelines with removed creosote pilings or derelict vessels would be a good place to hide out in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Her response... My ranch would be the best. My 15-year-old is training for the zombie apocalypse with archery. Ooh. And since her ranch isn't far from my house, that might be where I will go. (laughs) Nice. So, on to our GIS section. Already? That was so fast. I know. Today, I want to highlight some really cool work that the Samish tribe is doing in partnership with Washington State Department of Natural Resources, the Washington Conservation Corps, the Veterans Conservation Corps, and Earth Corps. So many cores. I know. They've been cleaning creosote-treated wood and other marine debris from the Samish traditional territory of the San Juan Archipelago, which consists of part of Skagit County, Island County, and Southern Whatcom County, and the San Juan Islands in northwestern Washington state. And beginning in 2017, they performed a survey before their cleanup efforts began, and it allowed them to better direct their limited resources in cleanup beaches with the highest concentrations of creosote-treated wood and marine debris. They used GIS to both conduct the survey and to determine which areas had the most debris. They were actually surprised to find that there was a lot of debris in areas they had previously cleaned. So that's the revolving door of creosote fun that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of debris washes up on the same beaches each year. So they used some tools that we've talked about in previous episodes. So these GPS units to gather information during the survey. And they may have used hotspot analysis to find beaches with the highest concentrations of debris. In 2014 through 2018, they removed 702,350 pounds of creosote. Creosote. <laughs> From the makers of creosote, now comes creosote. <laughs> creosote treated wood and other marine debris from the shorelines of their traditional territory in the North Puget Sound. The Samish Indian Nation produced a story map. Yay! Woohoo! To talk about all of this. And they won second place in the 2017 Esri Storytelling with Maps contest. Awesome. Yes, pretty cool. That's very cool. 
Guess what? We'll have links to that in our show notes. Oh, yeah, we will. Definitely. They're also currently doing further research in order to better inform future efforts. Specifically, they're using something called a Bayesian Network Relative Risk Assessment Model to inform where to focus their resources. Jen just got real smart. Um... Well, something like that. A Bayesian network model is something that's mostly used in academia right now, but Esri, QGIS, and other software is... Is that really pronounced QGIS? No, it's QGIS. And others are incorporating tools to be able to more easily do this type of modeling inside of GIS software, or they have models where you can have your GIS data be inputs into the model. And very briefly, a Bayesian network is a model that brings known factors as well as unknowns and degrees of certainty of your data into a prediction model. So I'll have some links to some resources in the GIS blog, and you can also Google it for more information, but it's kind of complicated. But also really cool what they are able to do with it and how they can prioritize the work to, you know, get the most bang for the buck, which is what pretty much all government workers are always doing. Exactly. So I'll have lots more resources um, in the show notes and in the GIS blog. Awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to learn all about those mm, model network risk <laughs> assessment mm, Bayesian. Yeah. Uh, so on to our citizen science segment. We're going to talk about the MyCoast app. MyCoast, MyCoast, MyCoast. Talk about MyCoast, MyCoast app. So... <laughs> You can go download this app um, for Android. And that <laughs> I don't think this song comes with it. Um, you can download it for both Android and iPhone. So anyone who spots creosote, old docks, floats, or other marine debris on the beach can simply take a picture using the MyCoast app, and that photo gets geolocated, which means it gets coordinates attached to it, and that goes directly to the DNR Marine Debris Removal Program, letting them know what was spotted, and where it is, so they can go clean it up. So cool. Yeah. You can also use the MyCoast Washington app to contribute to ongoing shoreline research and monitoring by documenting areas where storms surge or king tide events have changed shorelines. Where you capture pictures of the impacts of king tides. Which are the highest tides. And then just beach photos, which contribute to time-lapse photo series of local beaches so scientists can see how they're changing over time. People can also view reports and images posted by others or... You can set a reminder for yourself for the next king tide. That's pretty cool. Right? So it'll tell you when the next king tide is mm-hmm. going to be happening, and you'll get a little reminder on your phone so you can go run out and take run pictures. Run out and take pictures, yeah. yeah. Washington is one of only five states currently using the MyCoast app and the only state on the West Coast. Wow. Way to go, Washington. That's yeah. actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love to see technology with some of this government stuff and just uh, to me i think this would have been such a cool app when i was doing my full-on poop detecting work because basically (laughs) if you're near a shoreline for work this would be really handy to have around when i was walking on the shoreline i would have been able to contribute to this app 
regularly. I mean, large marine debris, creosote pilings, right. derelict vessels. Like I saw that stuff all the time when I was out in the field, but there wasn't really a quick and easy way to get that information to DNR. And there's always kind of the question too about like, how much did they want the information? Mm-hmm. But because they have more technology available to process the information, I think they're more interested in it now. They right. still might not have liked me reporting every day, but... Because <laughs> they probably didn't have a way to process that or... Right, you know. exactly. And I I think even now, not with the MyCoast program, but just with the creosote and derelict mm-hmm. vessels, I think there's only two or three full-time staff that re- respond to those complaints. Right. So there's a lot of prioritization, certainly, that's going on. I did on. hear that they request and did recently get awarded additional funding this year by the, the awesome. state legislature. Yeah, it's a really cool program. I think that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. So there you have it. Mm. The end of episode 12. We hope you have giggled and filled your head with some new facts and that we've inspired you yet again for the next month to make it out alive. <laughs> In this episode, we shared how apparently sound travels on water. Who knew? What do you see if you see a ghost or pirate ship in the Salish Sea? And how to handle your own pirate ship if it be dying? (laughs) Why removing creosote pilings and the associated woody bits is so important? How the Samish tribe has been using GIS to better predict where marine debris is concentrated and also how to report marine debris or other marine water concerns with the MyCoast app. Nice. Please join us for our next episode, Nights of the Drifting Shoreline. That, what? That's Nights with a K. Ooh, mm-hmm. I'm so curious. Well, you'll have to tune in next time to learn more. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com slash willwemakeitoutalive. Also, share this with everyone you know if you know what's good for you. That's and right. And I'm telling you what's good for you, so you should just do that. It's free and easy, and it will help us. We need help. Help us. We need so much help. I don't know if the podcast can provide all the help we need, but it's a good place to start. Yeah. Also, we have episode number two, Victoria's Pooping Habits, available on our YouTube channel. Will we make it out a live podcast? We'll also put a link in our show notes. And please subscribe. We're trying to get more subscribers there so we can do cooler stuff. Like get a custom URL so we can tell you exactly how to get there. Yeah, instead of giving you a bunch of letter numbers that nobody will ever remember, including ourselves. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Until next time. Will Will we we make make it out alive? This is Amy, the Poop Detective, signing off. And this is Jen, the Magical Mapper, also signing off. Goodbye. 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 We could just keep saying this for like 20 (laughs) more minutes.